Good morning, Cornerstone. Wanted to mention that we're in prayer for Tom. Tom had a medical emergency a couple weeks ago and went to the hospital and had surgery. And he's at home now recovering, so we thank God that he's recovering uh, safely at home. But we all know Tom, so we know Tom doesn't want to leak phone calls or emails. He doesn't want you sending him any, any food. He says he's doing fine. He and his cat are doing fine at home as he rests. So we're praying for him. It all just fell apart. That's how Joseph explained it as we sat in a semicircle seeking help with our hurts and habits and hangups. He said, it all with the wrong crowd, you're bound to get yourself into trouble. But Joseph didn't believe his parents. He started staying out later and later. He started getting into fights at the mall. His grades began to suffer. And as he describes it on one fateful morning, in the summer of 1974, Joseph came home after staying out all night and he was drunk. And his parents sat him down at the kitchen table and tried to talk some sense into him to plead with their son to turn his life around and they promised him all kinds of rewards if he would just heed their advice if he would just take heed of their warnings but Joseph had had enough he'd already lost his little summer job he'd already lost the chance for any academic scholarships and on that morning, Joseph says he lost his patience. He stood up like a lion over the kitchen table and he roared all kinds of obscenities at his parents. And he sung from that old adolescent hymnal that most parents with teens are too familiar with. You never loved me. You never cared about me. You were never there for me. You don't understand me. You don't appreciate me. Any child with teenage parents probably knows something about that. But his parents were too wise to take the bait of his grievances. They were too wise to be sidetracked from their objective to save their boy. And they kept chiding him and talking to him until Joseph finally crossed the line. He pounded his hands on the kitchen table and declared that he hated both of his parents and he wished them out of his life. And upon hearing those hateful words, his father just buried his face in his hands. But his mother stood up from the kitchen table, went up to the attic and got two suitcases. Took the suitcase to Joseph's bedroom and filled the suitcases with all of his belongings, as much as would fit. And quietly she rolled the luggage back into the kitchen and said to Joseph, you son are no longer welcome in this house. And you will never be welcome here again until the day that you apologize and change your ways. 
That was 1974. It wouldn't be until 2004, 30 years later when I met Joseph, before he saw his parents again. It all just fell apart. This is the story of a man named Joseph. But it's also the story of mankind from the dawn of creation up until the coming of Jesus Christ. Humanity was born into a life of ease. Mankind was born into a life of wealth where anything we wanted, anything we needed was generously provided. We were born to reign. Every single human being was born to reign. We are not cosmic accidents. We were born, we were made with a purpose. And the only reason we can't see it is because we lack imagination. We find it nearly impossible to believe that there was a time when there was no sickness and no disease. We can't imagine a world like that. There was a time when there was no lack and there was no limitation, there was no war and there was no gossip about a war. We can't imagine a time like this. And even if we're able to envision such a time and space, most people cannot imagine that there was a time where humanity stood side by side with Almighty God Himself. There was a time where mankind strolled with God in the park. <laughs> a time when God sat with us and shared with us his vision and he listened to the desires of our hearts. We can't imagine a time like this. And I agree, I agree that such a utopia does sound hard to believe. And if not for the many signs of humanity's glory, I would grapple with this. But when I consider mankind's intelligence as compared to every other living creature, when I observe humanity's miraculous resilience and our capacity to carve out a life even in the harshest of environments, when I consider mankind's complexity, our ability to solve complex problems, our ability to make strategic decisions in anticipation of a particular outcome that hasn't even come to pass yet. When I ponder these things, I can't help but believe that humanity was made by someone who really cared an awful lot about us. And I echo the ponderings of King David in the eighth Psalm when he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, David is wondering at the glory of the stars and the moon and, and the heavens in comparison to the glory of mankind. He can't help but ask God the question, what is man that you think of him? I mean, compared to the stars, we look like we're nothing. What is man that you think of him? What is a son of man that you are concerned about him? 
David says, you have made mankind a little lower than God. Listen to that. You have made mankind a little lower than God. And you crown mankind with glory and majesty. You have him rule over the works of your hands. You have put everything under his feet. What is man that you would do all of this for him? In that moment, David became acutely aware of his true value, of his true worth and dignity before God. David became aware of the fact that the person who made mankind has given us every advantage that we could possibly need to master our environment. God has made mankind the vice regents of all of creation in complete alignment with his will. He says that we were made to function just a little lower than God himself. Isn't that amazing? So what happened to us? <laughs> what happened to us? How is it that in a world brimming over with food that so many children die of starvation each year? What happened to us? Why is it that we cannot resist the temptation to oppress and to subjugate one another? What happened to us? Well, it all started on that fateful day in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and his wife decided that God did not have their best interest at heart. When Adam and his wife felt that they had outgrown God and they rebelled against him when they, with the help of Satan, attempted a heavenly coup. What happened to us? Sin happened to us. Verse 12 of Romans chapter 5 explains that through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so, death spread to all mankind because all sinned. That's what happened to us. Sin happened to us. In moral terms, sin is any act, thought, or intention of wrongdoing. In Paul's theology, sin is more than just conscious wrongdoing. Sin is, the, is mankind's universal, debilitating, and ongoing state of hostility against God. Sin. From my personal perspective, sin is anything I do, think, or say that is not in my eternal best interest or the best interest of others. Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff was of the opinion that sin is a malignant personal power that holds humanity in its grasp. Sin. As you can hear, sin is very difficult to define because in many ways sin remains a mystery. That's how Paul describes sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 7. The mystery of iniquity. Sin is in some ways still a mystery to us. 
But no matter which of these definitions resonates in your heart, the consequence of sin is the same, death. Paul says here in verse 12 that through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so, death spread to all mankind. Sin is a mystery. But death is also a mystery. Some years ago now, one of my older brothers passed away, the first of my siblings, well, the second of my siblings to pass away. And I remember grappling with God about this idea of death. Frustrated with God at this idea that there will be a time when I no longer exist. I cannot wrap my mind around that. It's a mystery. Death is a mystery. It doesn't matter how deeply you look into it. The secrets of death lie beyond man's ability to fully comprehend. I cannot, you cannot understand what it is to be dead. To no longer exist in a physical form. But all of us are going to experience that phenomenon of physical death at some point. But beyond physical death, there is another kind of death. A death that is more profound and a death that is more permanent. To be physically dead means that I am no longer accessible to men. But to be spiritually dead means that I do not have access to God. It signifies the personal, the irrevocable rupture of the possibility of a relationship with God, spiritually dead. And every sinner knows what this feels like. Because every person that is born into the world was born without a personal relationship with God. We were all born sick to the core with debilitating sin. We were all marked for destruction. Mankind who was designed, mankind who was created to rule over the cosmos is instead subjugated to the passion of sin that beats in his breast since the day of his birth. We are born spiritually dead and without a relationship with God. And the most challenging reality to all of this is that we are helpless to do anything about it. Helpless to save ourselves from ourselves. Helpless to recover that relationship with God that we so desperately need because of the sin that we inherited from our first parents. Helpless. Verse 6 tells us that while we were still helpless, helpless to stop the cycle of death and the cycle of sin, helpless to eradicate the sin that barred us from finding our way back to God, while we were still helpless, while we were moving rapidly along the conveyor belt toward permanent isolation from our God, while we were still helpless at the right time, I like that. Just in the nick of time, Christ died 
for the ungodly. Praise God. We are the ones contaminated with sin that keeps us from a relationship with God. We are the ones who were marked for death. But Jesus Christ has died in our place. And this is the scandal of God's grace. This is why we call Jesus Christ our Savior. Because just in the nick of time, Jesus Christ gave his life so that we could live. This is what makes him so amazing. Because as Paul recognized in verse 7, one will hardly die for a righteous person. Truth is, one will hardly die for any person. Self-sacrifice is not a common characteristic among men. The willingness to no longer exist so that someone else can live. Such valiance, such self-sacrifice is very unusual, highly unlikely, Paul says, even when the victim is a good person. Paul says, perhaps for the good person, someone would even dare to die. Maybe there's someone who would be willing to give up their lives for a good person. Then again, then again, Paul says, maybe not, perhaps. <clears throat> I guess it would depend on the circumstances. I guess it could depend on my previous commitments to my wife and to my family. Perhaps it would depend on how much life I have yet to live. Whether or not one, one would die for a good person may be swayed by many variables. Maybe you would die for a good person, but God demonstrates his own love toward me, his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, we weren't good people, while we were still sinners, we weren't righteous people. While we were still sinners, enemies of God, Jesus Christ died for us. While we were still in open rebellion, while we were still openly hostile toward God, going our own way, doing our own thing, and making the worst of a bad situation, while we were still uninterested in God, uninterested in his plan for our lives, uninterested in growing a relationship with God. While we were yet in our sin, God sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to die in our place. It is said that the cross of Jesus Christ is where love and justice meet. Often we hear Christians say that I would always prefer mercy over justice. I would always prefer grace over justice. And the premise for this choice is because God's justice requires that I be punished for my sin. That's what they think. But that's a fallacy. That's a false choice. The reality is that God's love and God's justice are one and the same thing. The Father sending his only begotten Son into the world to die for me is the most loving thing that God could have ever done. But it was also the right thing to do. It was also the just thing to do. Why do I say that? Well, you may want to hold on to your seat for this one. 
Sending Jesus Christ into the world to die in my place was the just thing to do. And the reason God giving up his son so that I could live was the most just thing that God could have ever done is because sin is not my fault. Sin is not my fault. I wasn't the one who brought sin into the world. I am not the one who created sin. I was born into sin without any choice in the matter. I inherited this monstrosity called sin. I didn't will for it. I didn't hope for it. The fact that I am a sinner is an existential reality far beyond my control. And God, as the only judge, is just to take these underlying, these extenuating circumstances into consideration. God knows that the things I do and the way that I am is truly beyond my ability to control. Are you holding your seat? Sin is not my fault. God knows that I was marked for death because of the sins of my first parents. But the question becomes, how can God save me from the imminent destruction that awaits my soul? How can God rescue me off of death row without violating his own sense of justice and of the law? How can he save me? Someone has to die. The wages of sin is death. Someone has to pay. This divine decree could not be altered. This divine decree could not be overruled. Someone has to die. And if not us, then someone has to die for us. But someone has to die. Jesus Christ died for us. And now verse 9 says that having been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We've been justified. We've been called righteous because Jesus has been called unrighteous. We've been called just because Jesus Christ has suffered injustice. The humiliating injustice of being crucified for things he didn't even do. The humility of being put to death for who I am and the things that I have done. Now some thinking person right now is saying, well that's unfair too, isn't it? Was it fair for Jesus to have to die? Is it justice that this innocent man would be crucified? If in fact he had not earned the judgment of death, was it fair for Jesus? But this is how great God's love is for you and for me. That God would submit himself to this great injustice of death so that justice could come to us. And while it may seem unfair for Jesus to have suffered death, turns out it wasn't so bad after all. Because unlike you and unlike me, 
Death could have no permanent power over Jesus. <laughs> this is the wisdom of God. The Father knew that if I died in my sin, the death would be permanent and eternal. But if Jesus Christ died in my place, Death had no power to keep him in the grave. And by the third day, Jesus Christ would rise from the dead. Death would lose all of its power. And I would have a chance to rebuild my relationship with my God. The relationship that Adam and Eve compromised. Hmm. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul says in verse 10 that if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, Paul says in verse 11, we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ. We have been reconciled to God by his life and his resurrection from the dead. In the Garden of Eden, it all fell apart. Adam and Eve distrusted God and took their lives and their destinies into their own hands. And they let go of the hand of God and it all fell apart. Their decision cast all mankind into a world that is devoid of God, a chaotic, divisive, and fragmented world where God's voice has been tamped down and the spark of the love of God no longer abides in our own hearts. We were helpless. The truth is, without God, every person is helpless. We were victims of sin, alienated from the only one who had the cure. And through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God has made a way for us to find our way back to him so that we can renew our relationship, so that we can be reconciled and restored to life in God. As I wrap it up here, I want to take a moment to add a caveat to something that I just said to make sure there are no misunderstandings. Because liberal theologians would capitalize on something that I said. They try to make the case that all people, regardless of their sins, all people have already been reconciled to God since their sin is not their fault. I want to make sure I clarify that because this is a serious misunderstanding that we have to rectify. There is no doubt that we are sinners, not by choice, but by birth. That is just a fact. There is no question that we are born in sin, that we are shaped in iniquity. That is just the truth. There is no biblical question that instead of being mercenaries, that we are the plunder, that we are the spoils of sin. There is no question that sin is not our fault. Sin is not your fault. 
But sin is your problem. <laughs> sin is not your fault. But sin is your problem. <laughs> this wrong. Sin is not your fault. Nobody's blaming you. But sin is your problem. And only Jesus Christ has the answer to your problem. So don't walk away today thinking that the pastor said, well, sin is not my fault. So I just do what I want because this is just who I am. This is how I was made. There's no, no, there is a problem. You have a problem, even if you're not at fault. You inherited sin. It's in your DNA, it's in your bloodstream. And it's not even your fault. But it's your condition. Sin is not your fault, but sin is your problem. And sin is a problem that has been resolved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And while God has demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners, it is God's desire and it is God's expectation, not just to save us, but also to give us the capacity to truly repent. I've talked about this a lot of times. God has given us the capacity to truly repent. To repent means to change your mind. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, to change our ways. <laughs> Why am I saying this? You know, some people, some people want to come to Christ, but they want to bring all their baggage with them. This is just me. This is who I am. And God just accepts me as I am. Yes, God accepts you as you are. But once he gives you the power of the Holy Spirit, you now have the capacity to change and God expects you to change. <laughs> yeah, so that's for the liberal theologian, not, not to run away with what I said. Sin is not your fault. Sin is your problem. And one cannot avail himself of the power of the grace of God for salvation without at the same time making full use of God's power to overcome innate sin and the practice of sin. That same power that saves, the same power that heals, same power that breaks the bondage of sin. I just want to clarify that because I got ahead of myself. We're going to talk about that much more in depth as we go through the book of Romans, but I want to clarify that today just in case you don't catch the rest of the sermon series. What a wonder. This great love of God. That me, a sinner, someone who actively rebels against the will of God, that while I was yet in my sin, that in his mercy and compassion, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for me, to pay the price for my rebellion. That's the kind of God that we serve. He is a merciful God who desires that all people would be saved, that all people would come to the knowledge of the truth. Sin is not your fault. Sin is your problem. And Jesus Christ is the answer to your problem. I hope that you'll receive Jesus today. I hope you'll receive the remedy that God has provided today by simply confessing to God that I am a sinner, that I am in need of a savior, that I believe that you sent Jesus Christ into the world to die in my place, 
so that I would not have to permanently be dead and in exile from a relationship with you. I believe that. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and your only begotten son. I confess that I have been sinning and I am a sinner and I ask right now that the love of God would be shed abroad in my heart, that you would save me now, that you would rescue me from myself, that you would rescue me from my hurts and my habits and my hangups, that you'd make me over, and that you'd make me new. This is the prayer that the Christian prays. This is the prayer that I pray every day and I hope you all pray it as well because all of us are being made and remade daily as we die to ourselves and draw closer to our God. Thank God for his saving grace. Thank God for his unfailing love. We give him praise. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, your love and your grace is amazing. Like David, I stand in awe when I consider how much you care about me, how concerned you are about my well-being. I thank you today, Father God, that you are a loving God, that you've demonstrated your love for us by sending your only begotten Son into the world to be crucified in my stead. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your tender mercy, your loving kindness. I pray, Father God, for all of us that on this week we will take time to really consider deeply the price that you have paid for our ransom. That our hearts will be overjoyed as we consider the great thing that you have done and securing for us eternal salvation through your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We give him all the glory, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.